and welcome to Pedagodzilla, the pedagogic podcast with the pop culture core. Today we will be answering the bloody stupid question, how do a scarecrow, a lion, a tin man and a gal from Kansas overcome imposter syndrome? To answer that question, hello, I am Mike. I am a learning designer at the Open University and a man with a microphone. I'm joined by my capable co-host. I'm Mark Childs. I'm a senior learning designer at Durham University. And my snappy tagline is, I've got a PhD in education. Ooh. And we are joined today by our guest. Da, 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 da. Hello, I am Puyin Wong. I am a learning technologist from the Royal College of Art. And I am, I guess my snappy tagline is that I'm a wannabe PhD person because I am doing a PhD in education. So uh, we see how to go. <laughs> Are you wannabe if you're actively doing a PhD? Surely that makes you a PhD. Like <laughs> I am, I'm actively doing it, but the dropout rate for PhDs, as you know, is very high. So we'll see how that goes. How far into it are you? I'm about 18 months in. So uh, <laughs> still early days. I, I I can't see this is the thing. I'm allowed. I'm I'm allowed to say I'm a PhD student. I'm not technically allowed to say I'm a PhD candidate because my candidacy hasn't been confirmed yet. That seems complicated. Is that coming up soon? In about nine months to 12 months, yeah. Okay. Oh, so how many years is it overall then you're doing it? For? Is this part-time? More minimum four years, yeah. So I'm doing the first, yeah, the first half. Mine is very much like an eddy, so I'm doing the, the modules. And the good thing about that is that every word we write goes towards a final work count. So our thesis is it's about 50,000 words as opposed to 80. So it's good. I feel like I've, I've got about... 12, 15,000 words under my belt already, um, which is good. Yeah. Cool. Uh, so, uh, Puyin, you're not sort of just content with uh, learning, technologizing, and PhDing, but you also run your own podcast. Oh, yeah. Forgot about that. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I also run my own podcast. It's called My Liminal Pot. So, I invite my friends to come and talk about things in higher education, learning technology. So, uh, by default, because you asked, you're both invited now. Oh, cool to my future episodes and we can we can we can think about what we talk about because we we talk random bits that hopefully will be meaningful for people i think of anything mark based on how this recording has gone so far the lack of planning that's gone into it then very much our very much our wheelhouse just random bits <laughs> just speak and <laughs> yeah. then at the end be like was there some sense in there somewhere so what would be what would you say would be a good uh, hopping on episode for people for your podcast so the, the actually is the latest one i've, I've just recorded with my colleague from from UCL, Martin Compton. So we're talking about ungrading and the damage grading can do to students' confidence, which I think this leads to the topic of today's episode about the imposter syndrome, that I got three distinctions for my first year of my PhD. And so I was high as a kite by the end of last year. And now in the last six months, I've been having serious doubt about my ability because I'm not that good. I'm not an A student, but I, I keep getting A's and no, I'm not. So something doesn't add up and it's really, really messing with my mind. Oh my God. Am I that good or am I not that good? I don't know. So I'm suffering a um, from a very serious um, bowel of imposter syndrome at the moment. I'm really sorry to hear that, but also chuffed as chips that it leads so beautifully, so beautifully <laughs> into the theme of today's episode for, for your great misfortunes. So I apologise for that. And it was really, really good slash bad timing that I released the episode um, literally the day before I got my um, feedback for this module for my for my from my PhD, and my paper got torn apart. But then I got three A's just before that, so I'm like, uh. "What's going on, mate?" Um, and then listen to the, to the episode myself, and I'm like, yeah, 
I am what Martin and I talked about in the podcast by getting good grades and the damage it's doing to a student's psychology. Worth listening, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> so it's not just bad grades that affect people's mental health, it's the good grades as well. Yeah, particularly uh... good grades because I think the problem is how do you maintain the A's? Because you have yeah. a taste for it, how do you maintain it? You do anything, you do anything to maintain it. You, you become someone who keep chasing good grades rather than necessarily learning things that might be yeah. useful. Yeah. I'm not there yet. I'm still trying to learn something that might be useful. <laughs> God, yeah, that's that's really terrifying. Yeah, when the only way is down, when you're at the crest yeah. of the waves, the only way is down. Ooh. So let's explore this further uh, in the first part of our show where we look to break down the components of our question. Part one, the question. Okay, so how do a scarecrow, a lion, a tin man, a gal from Kansas overcome imposter syndrome? So we've got two components to this, uh, chiefly imposter syndrome, which is going to be our focus for this show, and also just loosely, very loosely understanding it through the lens of The Wizard of Oz, by which I mean the 1939 movie, not the 1910s and onwards uh, series of sci-fi books? I guess they are fantasy. Well, he... um L. Frank Baum, who wrote them, wrote them as modern fairy tales. So I think that's very much the sort of where he's coming from. And, and if you're reading them, that's the best approach to take is look at them as fairy tales, but for, you know, the, the audience of the time, really. The Wizard of Oz uh, movie, uh, many of you may have seen it, perhaps on a rainy afternoon on Channel 4. It was one of the first properly colour movies, and there's actually a fantastic bit early on when mm. uh, sort of blacky whitey sepia Kansas turns into the beautiful colour land of Oz, but essentially uh, follows the adventure of uh, young Dorothy and her dog Toto as they journey through the land of Oz to meet the Wizard of Oz and get back to Kansas along the way, picking up some friends, including the cowardly lion, who wishes he had some courage, a tin man, who wishes he had a heart, and a scarecrow, who wishes that he had a brain, all tr journeying to uh, the capital of Oz, where the Emerald City, to meet uh, the wizard himself, a mighty and powerful figure who can grant any wish who uh, tells them to bog off from a giant holographic head. Uh, then the chase by a wicked witch. The witch melts because witches are soluble. And then, ah, oh, the wizard, he wasn't the really wizard all along. He was a man behind a cape. But it's okay because everybody had the stuff inside them all along. The hearty boy, um, Iron Man. Iron Man? Steel Man. Tin. <laughs> tin Man. Sorry. Tin. Um, the Tin Woodman. The, the, the Tin Man. Uh, it turns out that he was full of heart all along uh, because he did hearty things throughout. Um, and the Scarecrow did some maths halfway along and um, the Cowardly Lion did a brave. That's oversimplifying the plot somewhat, but you'll be surprised that there's actually not much more story to it uh, in it. And there's a dog as well. It's a little kind of, was it like a little test terrier, a little black terrier? Toto. Sort of yeah, Toto. He's mm. like a little Westie or something. He's bloody gorgeous. Yeah, and there's lots of excellent bits of movie trivia for The Wizard of Oz as well, including how they used like various sort of lead-based paints and things to get people to have the, the right colours and gave people skin poisoning. I think um, the Tin Man was um, like his like silver silvering might have had mercury or something crazy in it, um, but he got very poorly off the, uh, the makeup that they applied to him. Just, yeah, movies in the 1930s, shit show. <laughs> um, does anybody have anything else to add to my exposition on The Wizard of Oz? Only that it syncs up with Dark Side of the Moon for some reason. What? <laughs> if you start Wizard of Oz and Dark Side of the Moon at the same time, each scene transition syncs up with track transition. That's incredible. Yeah, and I just have no reason for it, just a coincidence. 
I've got to very quickly see if somebody's done this on YouTube. <laughs> well, Mark has obviously. No, it's just one of those sort of, you know, stoner things that get passed around. You know, well, you know that if you, uh, and you go, no, really, and then you do it and you go, oh my God, that's amazing. But it's just, you know, if you think of the number of movies there are and the number of albums, statistically, it's going to sync, one is going to sync up with another at some point. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. It's all here on YouTube. I'll see if I can link it in the show notes. <laughs> and uh, Puyin, uh, any uh, your sort of awareness of uh, The Wizard of Oz? I've got to say that I've never watched it. I don't know how you've escaped that. I'm aware of the movie and I'm aware of the storyline. I've heard it so many times, but I've never watched it. Now I'm going to have to, to put me out of my shame. I've got, <laughs> a little, I've got a little brown bag over my head at the moment. that says like, <laughs> like shame. It's <laughs> just covering my head with like two little holes in my eye poking out. Um, <laughs> but, you know, when we've done stuff in the past, there's been, I've had huge gaps. Like I've never seen The Sound of Music. So you can't have seen everything. Let's move on to the meat of the show, imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. First of all, let's just talk about what imposter syndrome is on the surface, and then maybe we can start diving into some of the uh, the aspects of it and kind of the, the domains within. Okay, so imposter syndrome, the feeling of being an imposter. Uh, that could be in a professional, social, or educational environment. Uh, the feeling that you are perhaps out of place, that you've perhaps got there by by some stroke of luck and not your own inherent skills, not trusting those skills or your own knowledge or your own feeling secure in your own place in that. So who, who wants to kick us off? Lean on, lean on you as our guest. And self-professed expert. I think when you said on Twitter, I'm the expert on imposter syndrome were your exact words. This is when the, the people who suffer from imposter syndrome shut up. <laughs> <laughs> and, and thinking inside my head, inside my, my heart, please don't pick me. Please don't pick me. I, I don't know what to say because I don't know what I'm saying. Oh, my God, you've got imposter syndrome about imposter syndrome. Yes, I do. <laughs> you are an expert. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, this is like, you know, it's been going on for years. Like, you know, in, in, back in, because I come from a creative art background. I did my MA in fine arts. So for those of you who don't know how a fine art course run is that every week you sit around in a circle and you talk about each other's work. It's like in a therapy, group therapy that never ends. Ooh. And every single week I'm like, please don't pick me. I don't know what to say about your work. I have an opinion, but I, I don't want to say it. But I, it's, it's horrible. So um, that is my take on imposter syndrome is please don't pick me. <laughs> I was, that's a good that's a good start because in the creative arts particularly like writing everybody who writes thinks that i'm not everybody but uh what was it taiki wakiti called it it's like crippling self he says uh self-doubt of the crippling variety <laughs> and it's like sorry that's my new zealand accent what a perfect impression <laughs> it's like it's like he was here in the room with us for a second there <laughs> That self-doubt and crippling self-doubt is the thing that often gets in the way. It's like, I can't do this. Or I write something and look at it and you think, oh, my God, that's shit. And I think one, it's one of those areas where, you know, like writing, creating stuff, it's so difficult to tell whether you're any good or not. Yeah, I, one of the first times where I thought this is I've picked the wrong thing here is one of my friends from uni, he did biosciences, he did biochemistry, and he, uh, in his first postgrad, in his doctorate, doctoral studies learned to operate a machine and because he could have something to do with genetics and genetic sequencing or whatever and he ended up being one of the few people in the world who could do this and so 
he'd got this thing to point to to say, look, this is what I do. I can actually operate this. There's no question, therefore, that he's an expert in this because he presses the buttons and it works. You know, mm-hmm. we just had some plants put in the garden. You know, carpenter. You don't have to have imposter. You don't have imposter syndrome, I guess, if you're a carpenter, because you get some planks of wood, you stick them together, <laughs> and there's a planter, and you know it works because there's no there's an objective measure of the fact that this thing hasn't fallen apart. And I think one of the issues with us, because we've all chosen education, is that we're constantly suffering from imposter syndrome because. There's nothing you can specifically point to to say, yes, this is what I can do. We've probably mentioned in the Dunning-Kruger effect episode that part of the Dunning-Kruger effect is that if you know nothing, you overestimate what your abilities are because you don't know how much there is to know. But the other end of the Dunning-Kruger effect is if you know a lot of stuff, and because that's so ingrained, you tend to over underestimate the value of it. It's getting to the point in learning where you understand how little you know or that some chasm of your own ignorance starts yawning in front of you. Yeah, but then you also presume that everybody else knows that as well. And Pooh, you made a really good comment on our role specifically being prone to this. So I don't know if you want to come in there and say about the third space professional stuff. Yeah, so, um, well, first of all, I, I personally... I have a serious issue of, of, of the phrase third space professional because it's kind of like, I'm not first, I'm not second, I'm third. I mean, who, I mean, like, like, with respect to, to the person who come up with a, with a, with a, you know, category of put, to put us in a box because we need some recognition in, in, in our own sort of as learning technologists or learning designers, education developers, so on and so forth. We need some stronger professional identity. But third space is like, well, why can't we be first or second? Anyway, that's the conversation <laughs> you want, Do you time. want to just explain what that is? Because actually when you mentioned I've, I've it, I've never encountered third space as a phrase I before. hadn't as well. And then I looked it up, up after Puyin's email and I thought, oh, God, this is a really common phrase that I've just never come across. Yeah, like, so... No. Yeah. My my understanding, and this, this is normally wrong, and this is the imposter syndrome me talking. Um, the phrase third space professional was coined by um Celia Whitechurch. She's written a few books about the third space professional, which are people like us, learning designers, learning technologists, education developers, academic developers, who are not we got we're kind of a hybrid because we're not technically academics because we don't teach course necessarily we don't do assessment like teaching um, academics do we're not technicians because we don't necessarily fix things all the time so we're kind of in between so the 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 phrase third space professional comes from from the fact that we lack a professional identity hence the third space because we're neither here nor there a lot of research says, um, is going into it by people that that i know um huge, huge respect to these people but I have a problem with the with the phrase because I'm not number three. I I, I know the arrogant me saying I'm number one. The imposter me saying I am probably number two, but I'm most definitely not number three. But yeah, so I think I think the imposter syndrome of being in the in the third space is that people keep telling me or keep, people keep telling you you're not good enough in this particular subject area. You're not good enough in your knowledge because. Who are you? You're not a teacher. You're not a technician. You're not a librarian. Who are you? What do you do? That's a very good question. I I don't know half the time. You know. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, that's another that's another element of the sort of the learning designer, learning technologist role of just people go to you. What do you do? What's your job? And you go, what day of the week is it? What? 
Well, and also, I mean, I was asked that in a meeting a couple of weeks ago, and I just fell apart. And I just thought, oh, God, I'm being challenged here. And it's like, well, you know, I... Uh, um, and then I, I came out with some examples after after a bit of stammering, and then they went, "Oh yeah, so that means this." And I thought, "Oh, all they were after was just enough of a concrete idea so they could talk about it and think how I could be useful." And usually, after a, I've worked with people, people find they are, but but it's that initial thing where you think my my expertise here isn't isn't just not recognised; it's not even understood, or not, or people don't even realise there is expertise in that kind of thing. And so that makes it really difficult. I mean, compared to when I used to be a physics teacher, and I go, oh, I'm a physics teacher, and everybody would know what that was. And they go, yeah, I don't know physics. Physics is really hard. And I'm going, well, you need a good teacher like me. And it would, like, give me a way in. You wouldn't even have to explain it. People would stop talking to you because they just hated physics teachers. <laughs> but at least they knew what it is that you did, you know, and that made it – that was so much easier than the, than the current role, really. So I think that's part of where – the imposter thing comes from is one not having a kind of a field of expertise with you can actually point to that's concrete and then secondly having one that's not really fully understood and as pian was just saying not really fully credited either it's, it's interesting my my, pl- my plumber came around last year to fix something and it was like I've, lo- I've known this guy for years and for the first time he asked me so what do you do for a living I'm sure he asked me that question before, probably a yearly thing. Anyway, and um, it was, I said, I'm a learning technologist. And he said, don't know what that is. I do online learning. Don't know what it is. I fix computers. Ah, okay. <laughs> I, I got to a problem. I was like, you know what? It doesn't matter. Yeah, I just, no. just, I fix computers, which I don't, but I kind of do because a lot of the problems that we, we encounter from our colleagues is fixing their computers in some shape or form. So sometimes I just reduce to, yeah, I, I work in IT, whatever. I don't, you know. <laughs> it's fixing the most fault-ridden part of a computer, which is the user, isn't it? Well, yeah. That's what education is, really. <laughs> <laughs> ID 10 T era, yeah. I like the, um, I, I say like the idea of the third space thing is like a third, as in sort of, you know, third ranking does rank all, ironically. Well, at least it's not fourth or fifth. We're still third. That, that's a positive out of it, you know? Okay, here's a good example as well, is that um, I think sometimes people come to these shows as guests thinking, well, we've actually had some people saying we can't sound as good as as you two do. And yet when you hear the actual recording, we're talking utter, utter shite for three quarters of the time, really. And it's only massive amounts of post-production that means that we actually sound like we can string a sentence together. So I think it's getting worse in a lot of ways because... I mean, it's a, it's a cliche now. I mean, in society, it's a cliche now. But people say that, you know, with the thing that hot about social media is that you see each other's show reel mm. and you see your own blooper reel. You know how much you mess up individually. But when you look at other people, you get an entirely different perception of how competent they are. And you see them coming to, I don't know, a meeting and they're all prepared and they can all pull all the figures out of their, the air. But they go away and they're probably just, well, I can't imagine they're just as big a fuck-up as I am, but they are pretty much, they're not what you see when you see them in the in the meetings or at work or on the screen or on a podcast. So I think that's part of the issue as well is that is that we can filter and we can prepare and we can show our best face. And that means that then we're getting a better, and that everybody else is doing that, but we don't see the the script that's behind that face, and yet we do for our, ourselves, and I think that adds to it as well. 
which I think is an interesting link to specifically the roles that we do, because I think so much of them lean on um, credibility. So you've got to have a sort of a measure of credibility and, and weight behind you in in what you're doing. I mean, for us, for me, certainly it's for, you know, having buy-in with academics and everything and colleagues and being able to, you know, be uh, confident and, and give it an impression of sort of certainty when saying things, which when you're starting out in particular, uh, is very, very difficult because you've not got that level, that base experience to do on. So you are having to uh, not quite fake it till you make it, but you have to put a confident front on that you may not necessarily be feeling, which is of course going to yeah reinforce. That is literally the the definition of uh, of feeling like an imposter. I was just going to ask about being the, your um, PhD. And so you're working on a PhD at the moment. And do you think that once you've got those additional letters after your name, that will be enough to make you feel like less of an imposter. Um, I ask me again in three or four years' time when I've got it. <laughs> when you've got it. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to be honest with you. Um, mm. One of the motivation, motivational reason, one of the reason for wanting to do a PhD is to try and cure my imposter syndrome. Yeah. Do I like studying in particular? No, I do not. Do I like reading? Absolutely not. Uh, so uh, why am I putting myself through this really challenging and difficult journey is because I want to get out of that am I good enough kind of kind of mentality and I think Mm. I think um like I said earlier I'm 18 months into my PhD journey I am seeing a little bit of a transformation I kind of starting to feel like sometimes maybe every other Monday I'm not really an imposter but every other Thursday I'm like well actually I'm not good enough so it's 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 in a way like going back to what you said earlier Mark the more you know the more you doubt yourself like life was so much easier before (laughs) I did my MA because I knew very little and I was I was an imposter and I was like, yeah, that's cool, go to work, do a good day's work, come back and not have to think about it. But now the more you know, the more of an imposter you think you are. Mm-hmm. And it's it's quite interesting, you know. Uh, and and um, one thing I want to say as well, um, back to my art school days, um, now thinking back, it's been, you know, 10, 12 years now, um, the imposter, the actual imposter were always the ones who spoke the loudest. Mm. And now I'm thinking about what they were saying. It was just a load of shit. Mm. I'm allowed to swear in, in, in the show, aren't I? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Mark, that was such a better answer. Oh, bloody hell. So it's like the less you know, the, the, the more kind of fake confidence you have. And so you can speak louder, but that doesn't necessarily mean you know anything. And I think the people who know more, those who suffer like us, who suffer from varying degree in, in, of imposter syndrome are the ones we, I think we overthink before we speak sometimes. We we doubt ourselves yeah. before we speak, I think. And that's contribute to our imposter syndrome or the other way around. Imposter syndrome contributing to our overthinking, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, it's probably cyclical. Yeah. Yeah, because you overthink things, which means you don't try things, which means you feel for like more of a fraud because you see other people speaking up. And yeah, and that becomes a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy then. And then linking back actually to many, many years back to our episode on cognitive load, that worry and that overthinking is actively consuming your working memory that you could be using to form a cogent answer to a question. Whereas in fact, you know, if you were feeling a little bit more sort of, you know, relaxed and confident in yourself, you would be finding it much easier just to go, oh yes, the answer is blur, but because you're stuck in this kind of this loop of overthinking, worry, panic, am I good enough? Um, uh, is this the right answer? Then you're 
you are cognitively impaired by your own uh, your, your own doubts. So I think the links um, when I was uh, looking into uh, just imposter syndrome in general, the links with uh, social anxiety as well uh, are quite sort of uh, quite distinct. And I wonder if, as much as anything, it's perhaps some of it perhaps stems from stuff from further down our evolution where we were kind of like you know a little immediate sort of groups and tribes of around about 100 sort of primates pottering around and everybody in the tribe sort of has a place and you have a place that you know and you're either a chap who's going out and doing a biff or you're the head honcho and that sort of thing and feeling secure in that well yeah i have to prove myself in this situation here because i don't have a role that everyone recognizes and so maybe that's you know, maybe that's where it does maybe some of it, where it comes from and then there's Maslow's um, hierarchy of needs as well. And I think we had acceptance within the community. Yeah. Uh, I believe relatively near to the top. Sort of, ah, feelings of security, security and acceptance within the community, um, within the pyramid. And of course, difficult to self-actualize when those uh, sort of supporting pillars are a little bit wibbly. So if you're not feeling confident in either, either of those areas, then that's going to contribute towards it. I'm just thinking. So, should we perhaps define, uh, sort of try and define a couple of the characteristics of um, okay. imposter syndrome? So, what do we think are kind of the the key uh, characteristics, symptoms, causes? Well, I mentioned a couple uh, that I'm reading around it. One, which is seventy six percent of people suffer from imposter syndrome at some point in their lives, and I'm guessing the twenty four percent of people that who don't are just a bit stupid. <laughs> <laughs> They're the loud, confident ones. Is Boris Johnson one of them? Yeah. <laughs> well, you could see these people don't, in, you know, these make the worst politicians. Obviously, they're the people that end up running things. But, you know, it's like Douglas Adams says, the people who want to run things are by no accounts the people who should be allowed to run things because they do, they don't have, they have mm. no self-doubt whatsoever. And so, and that's really dangerous. The other thing which um, I, I read somewhere, which is it's not, it's uh, it's that's split between the genders, so uh, male and female. No, they're just as likely to feel imposter syndrome, but it might be that people might be socialised into feeling they're imposters about different things. I don't know if anyone's got any comments on those. On the flip side, I think imposter syndrome keeps you going because for me anyway, imposter syndrome keeps me going, make me want to get better, make me want to kind of be not as much of an imposter i think and it i think for me it's a it's almost like a like a security alert sort of thing you know i i am i good enough oh maybe i'm not i ought to work better on this paper because i want to get an a <laughs> going back to what i said <laughs> earlier oh but I've, I've spent two weeks working on this draft it looks perfect but mm, the imposter and me saying well it's not good enough let me do it again so there is a the kind of you know kick up the backside kind of effect being an imposter or having suffer uh imposter syndrome i think um yeah i don't know if you, you agree yeah. but that works for me as a as a sort of you know rocket up my backside now and again just you need to do better because you need to, you need to prove to other people that you are not an imposter hmm. i i have i do agree I've, I've heard it referred to before as positive anxiety hmm. in in the workplace and that you need a little bit of fear behind you a little bit of anxiety just to keep yourself pushing forward and stop yourself from um from stagnating and i'd say most of my own positive career moves and kind of decisions and, and sort of things that I've picked up and learned have in some way usually been driven by that. Funnily enough, actually starting this podcast came entirely out of uh, imposter syndrome. I uh, started my role as a learning designer. I felt very kind of confident in my uh, the technical aspect um, and the 
kind of the design aspects and things like that. But my actual understanding of pedagogic theory and research didn't feel up to where it needed to be at all. And I was very, very um, anxious about that. I felt like absolute imposter because of it, which is why I started planning out the initial recordings for this and then happily ran into Mark uh, in the cafe on my way to actually record the first one. And he decided to join me and we went from there. But it all sprang from uh, an intense feeling of imposter syndrome that I really struggled to shake for probably the first two years of my role and am only now starting to move through, move past, mostly because I think as much as anything else, I've recently been teaching uh, or doing inductions and training for a lot of our new members of our team um, and suddenly being like, oh, okay, I think I actually know one or two things now, apparently, that I can tell other people. So maybe I don't know quite as little as I, I thought I did. And yeah, I, I agree with you in that having that little bit of um, anxiety to drive you forward does help. I'm not sure it's healthy. Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure uh, it's necessarily uh, necessarily good for me, but it is definitely something that I attribute towards me actually getting uh, my arse in gear and doing things. I was going to, another question to, to put you in was you kicked back against that thing about when I mentioned it in the email correspondence when we were planning this. <laughs> Planning. Sorry. Oh, planning. <laughs> <laughs> this is why I have I'm an imposter syndrome. I'm not very good because every time I come out with something that's so evidently bullshit, I just have to start laughing at myself. But anyway, was you kick back against the whole thing about it being as the same between uh, male and female that it wasn't gendered in the amount, but maybe in what it what it was about, and you felt that maybe f- women did feel it more than men. Yeah, I, I mean, I mean, as a woman, I can only tell you what. Me as a woman feel particularly again. I, I, you, you see, the thing is because I'm, I'm not white. I am very conscious of the fact that I don't want to box myself into the kind of being a race champion because I care about race issues and racism and all that kind of stuff. But academically, as me as a researcher, I, I'm not that interested. So every time I step into this sort of area, I'm really careful what I say. But yeah, I kind of feel like, yes, I think women suffer more, certainly from my perspective. But again, it depends on how you use that to feel your your next step. And I think I've been through both feeling, yeah, I'm not good enough. Mm-hmm. I, not to apologize, because I do realize you're both white men. I don't mean to, you know, um, it's not everyone. It's not everyone. I mean, but we do have to acknowledge acknowledge there's a lot of you know white privilege, male privilege that goes you know that we 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 do get it easy in a lot of ways and and there's a, there's a lot of dicks. And do you know what do you know what got me out of it was I was I was talking to a friend, um, uh, her name's Hannah. I'm going to send her this um, episode when it's finished because I owe that to her. She said to me in a WhatsApp message, WWAMWMD. And that stands for what would a mediocre white man do? <laughs> <laughs> so every time I kind of suffer from imposter syndrome, I'm like, yeah, WWAMWMD. And then all of a sudden, I'm like, yeah, I need to channel my inner mediocre white man. And then off I go. <laughs> you know, so it, it, it helps. That is the strangest yeah. motivational message ever, but I absolutely love it. I feel, I feel there's like some rubber wristbands and things. In and interestingly, oh, yeah. though, um, after the kind of internal transformation, imposter, not imposter kind of imposter kind of thing, I actually showed uh, one of my friends who was really uh, not confident about uh, uh, certain things. And I said, look, have a look at my writing, see what you think. And then she can, she knew me really well. And she comes back to me and said, oh, my God, if I didn't know you, just looking at writing, you look like a cold-hearted bitch. 
I'm like, well, <laughs> whatever gets me the next opportunity, mate, you know. Oh, my God. I was yeah. only channeling my inner white man, you know. Yeah. Um, but it, it took a long time to um, get over that, you know, you're not good enough because, yeah, there are always going to be, be people who keep telling you you're not good enough. Yeah. And that doesn't help with people yeah. like us who already suffer from, from imposter syndrome. It's an interesting scale, I think, that's developing here, just in kind of the conversation that we're having, that you've essentially got people who suffer from imposter syndrome, you've got people who are too stupid to know how thick they are, and then you've got people who actively look to uh, impose it on others uh, in order to boost or, or kind of cover for their own mediocrity. But those are the proper imposter. They, they're not the people yeah, who yeah. suffer from imposter syndrome. They are the proper imposter that are beyond mm. help. Imposters <laughs> of humanity. They're not aware of their own shortcomings. They think mm, yeah. they are just invincible when they think they are, you know. But I think that's the problem with imposter syndrome is it does actually does self-censor you from going to a lot of things. You think, well, I'm not good enough. So I think there's two choices you've got there is to one is to not go for it because you think, well, I don't do really deserve that because that's not me. And the other is to go for it and then just risk being more of an imposter and wonder how long it is before anybody sees through it. Yeah, well, that's the, that's the thing, isn't it? That's the, uh, the underlying fear of imposter syndrome is, oh my God, I'm going to be found out. So I'm, going to, I'm going to say something or I'm going to let something slip and people will find out that I'm not supposed to be here, that I should never have got here and that it's all been a horrible mistake. Like, you know, <laughs> I think uh, for me, when I started in the, in the learning design role, when I was in my probation, I had like one or two moments of that, like in kind of sort of team scenarios where I said something and it was just it, either, it was either just sort of plain dumb or mm. people reacted to it in a really weird way. And I was like, oh my God, is this the moment where I'm found out? Is this where it all comes crumbling down? Yeah. Do I get a knock on the, do I get called into the office now? And they're like, okay, so yeah, this isn't going to work out. Like, yeah, but this is this is the internal alert system I was talking about, your mm. security system where, you know, am I good enough? Am I not good enough? So, so you're aware of your maybe self-imposed shortcomings and a proper imposter wouldn't know that. They'd mm. just be like, Oh, this is brilliant! It's amazing. I'm I'm, I'm the best in the world. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I think that that's the difference. And a proper imposter wouldn't have the doubt that we have. Whereas yeah. people who know what they're doing, but who suffer from from imposter syndrome, will always think this is not good enough. What if What if I'm just a fake all these years? Mm. You know. Yeah. Can I just chuck one more? ingredient into the mix absolutely then we should probably move on to the second part of the show i think so i think we should probably move on to after so go for it mark class okay i thought everyone was going to run with that oh no okay. that... so cla- i thought i thought you were just sort of saying that, that was that's good class <laughs> oh yeah no class class answer there mike no uh Ch- oh, no. cheers mark now let's move no, on to cheers. the traffic <laughs> oh sorry I, I feel like i can mock your accent better than my hand. i'm not having much practice okay recently. have another go <laughs> Hello. Oh, bloody hell. I used to be... Okay, hang on. Yeah, all right, I'm Mark. Oh, dear. That's it. There you go. There I'm you a go. doctor so... of education. <laughs> oh, we went slightly, slightly scarce there. Yeah, I don't know way. what's happened. I'm sorry. Oh, it's <laughs> week in Manchester. I mean, I to open my mouth and then you can see people thinking, where the hell is this guy from? It doesn't matter how upper class you end up being. If you've got a black country accent, people will just think you're really just out the skip. <laughs> And I think that can actually make you think, to some extent, not necessarily that you're more an imposter, but there are more occasions where you are an imposter in that, um, you know, you've got to fake a whole lot of knowledge about traditions or about environments or 
So here's an example. This is what made me think of it was, you know, I'll just drop it into the conversation, but I got a National Teaching Fellowship Award. Um, last year. Mark? <laughs> that's yes, that's news. Yes. Nice. Uh, which has helped a bit with the imposter syndrome because I think, well, not many people have got, uh, well, it's quite a few hundred now, but never mind. Um, but um, it's, still at elit- it's still at Elitist Club, can I just say. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I, I do feel a bit more elitist now. I'm, I'm going to put this as a, one of the solutions for the back end of the show, being an yeah. elitist club. <laughs> but the the award ceremony was a black tie do and i th- i thought oh they don't want me because if they wanted someone like me to go they wouldn't have made it black tie because i don't know exactly what a black tie do is in fact i mean if if my wife could have gone with me but she, she was working overseas so she couldn't but if she could have done then she could have told me what to do <laughs> She went to a public school. She knows where all this sort of stuff is. But I don't. And so I'm going to be, I don't know, passing the the port the wrong way around or I'm going to be using the wrong knife or, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's all going to be like really stuck up and I'm just going to stick out like a, like a sore thumb and therefore, you know, just, just feel like an imposter it, on top of that normal layer that I normally feel like an imposter. So I figure... You know, that's perhaps where where the whole class thing comes in. It's not only how you're seen, it's that there are more and more situations in which you have to, have to actually pretend to be somebody you're not and mask your actual authentic self. And so therefore, you know, you're forced into being an imposter in more situations. Interesting interesting you say that. One of one of our um supervisors on the PhD, now I could have completely made this up, but I kind of remember he's him saying that. But it could just be one of my dreams. Okay, <laughs> he's, uh, he's, from, he's from the north of the country, so he's supposed to have a very strong and probably slightly uh, working class accent, shall we say? He was made to go to lessons and go to a really good school to wash off his accent mm. in the hope that he'll have a better future. By his mm-hmm. parents, not him, because a little five years or whatever wouldn't have had a had a say in that. Then he doesn't have a a northern accent at all. Hmm. And that was deliberate attempt that was to deliberate bit an hour of him, yeah. pretend to be somebody else that he's not in a way, really, to yeah, actually yeah. have to be in, how to, basically yeah. schooled in being an imposter. Yeah, and someone I know from, from Liverpool, oh, he's gonna, I'm going to get into trouble if he ever hears that. <laughs> he went to drama school to, <laughs> mm-hmm. again, have the Liverpool accent bitten out of him. Mm. So if, if you speak to him, you... He's a very proud resident of Liverpool, so he will tell you within the first 10 seconds of your conversation that he lives there. But if you just listen to his voice, you probably wouldn't necessarily think he's from that region. Again, for very similar reasons. It's because, you know, that is not a particularly sort of posh accent, according to whom I don't know, society, I guess. Who says the rule? I don't know. But, yeah. Yeah, so that's that's societally imposed imposter, actual imposter. Well, it's not even imposter syndrome. It's making people imposters almost. Yeah. It's, it's it's designed to make them feel like imposters. It's um, exclusive, as you said. Actually, elitist. It's 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 meaningful exclusive, so that it's um, actively trying to promote an in and an out, and making people who are on the out feel like they're out. That's a really interesting distinction. So, with the two components of our question <laughs> broken down, uh, let's very briefly, I think, uh, address the question and try and answer it a bit in part two. Part two, the answer. Okay, so back to our question. How Mm -hmm. do a scarecrow, a lion, a tin man and a girl from Kansas overcome imposter syndrome? 
have we really talked about overcoming imposter syndrome much? I suppose we have to a bit, which was to belong to an elitist club. I think we've talked about imposter syndrome a lot. I'm not sure we've talked about how to overcome it. We have, because Pian was talking about getting in a PhD. Trying to overcome. Trying to. You know, but, you but, but part yeah. of the rationale for that is that with the you know declaration that you'd know something, then that can help. And I talked about getting an NTF. So it's it's basically it's acknowledgement and recognition by some sort of external auditing auditing awarding auditing thing. I, I like auditing. Let's stick with that. <laughs> I mean, and, and that's that's a good point actually because I, I talked about doing this podcast, which has mm-hmm. definitely helped me with mine. And that is so. There's probably a couple of factors in play here. So we've got external yeah. validation. We've got actually expanding uh, into the area that you're afraid of. Uh, the area that you feel like imposter and actually actively looking to fill the gaps that you've identified. What other things do we have on overcoming? Well, and also acknowledging the fact that everybody else experiences it, apart from the people who genuinely are imposters. <laughs> I think that helps. P, anything to add on the overcomings? Um, for me, it's, the, it's my favourite phrase of the, the rest of my life. What would a mediocre white man do? That really <laughs> helps. <laughs> Interestingly, you know, with the National Teaching Fellow, the kind of slightly equivalent, although not quite, the principal fellowship with Avanti Xi. And mm. I was talking to a librarian friend. She was toying between, you know, principal fellowship, senior fellowship. And I said, look, you've just been nominated and you've submitted your NTF application. Why are you going for the senior fellowship? Just go straight to the principal fellowship. Mm. And she said, yeah, but I'm not good enough. I said, look, you've been nominated being one of the two people to go for the NTF, you are good enough. She's like, no, nah, nah. And I said, look, what would a mediocre white man do? And she said, <laughs> principal fellowship. I said, there you go, that's your answer. <laughs> so, I, this is, hang yeah, on. That's really good. This is going to go into my... What would... Or the WWA... But that doesn't help me because I am a mediocre white man. And I can't just do what I would do because I'm already doing that. But you're not... But no, there's, there's a difference between a knowledgeable white man and a mediocre white man. I don't oh, okay. think you're mediocre. You. Oh, okay. That's that's fixed me now because Pete, you, th- you think I'm not mediocre, and now that's completely done away with my imposter syndrome. <laughs> <laughs> it's like Mark, you and I can just submit what would Bojo do. <laughs> no, oh, no, he's not even mediocre. He's the next level down. He's the next oh, level he's down. Possibly he's subterranean, down. isn't he? Good God, what an yeah, unbelievable yeah. piece of sputum. <laughs> oh. <laughs> But it's people like him who are going to succeed in life in big, big yeah. time. Okay, so we've got some we've got some strategies. So let's think about um, the story. So actually, I think Wizard of Oz, specifically, actually the last bit of the Wizard of Oz, where um, the uh, the gang have vanquished a witch and they've returned to the Emerald City for the wizard's help. They uh, they see behind the curtain. They see the um, the mediocre white man behind the curtain. Uh, to discover that uh, he's not actually a huge, massive, booming wizard. He's just a, another fella from Earth who was uh, who was trapped there. And uh, yeah, but he gives them some things. So he gives uh, the Scarecrow a brain in a jar. No, I can't remember what he gives them. He gives them a diploma, doesn't he? Gives the Scarecrow... Yeah, gives them a diploma. A diploma. He gives the Lion Man... The Lion Man? He gives uh, the Lion a medal, I want yes, to say. Yes, for bravery. And he gives the Tin Man... It's not an actual heart, I think. Is it's it a anything? stuffed heart, isn't it, that just sticks in the yeah, and, in his um, chest. And he, he, he advises Dorothy on how to go home, but I think Dorothy's more an imposter in the area than suffering from imposter syndrome, unlike her, unlike her friends. So let's just take a quick look at that. So 
based on the things that we've identified and overcoming so far, the Scarecrow, the Lion, and the Tin Man are all being given extrinsic. Two of them have been given an extrinsic note of what it is that they can do. So, for instance, the Scarecrow has got exactly what I've got and what Puyin's going for, which is a diploma to say that they're smart, isn't it? That's what a PhD is. On paper, anyway. On paper. Something on paper to say that you are smart, and that's it. Puyin, that was the most imposter syndrome thing ever, by the way. Not not like, oh, this will finally prove that I'm smart because I will have done a smart thing and I've got the paper yeah. to prove it. It's like, I'm smart on paper, but we because all know somebody says deep I down. Am. Yeah. yeah, wow. Somebody says I am, yeah. This, this has been oh an amazing case study in imposter syndrome in action this yeah. episode. Pian, thank you so much for bringing your torture on the airwaves with us. You're very welcome. But that's it. I look at my thesis now and going, it still doesn't work entirely, but it does work for the scarecrow. He does actually say, yeah, I've got my diploma. I do have brains. And of course, and the, and the, the Wizard of Oz is not entirely a humbug, even though he, he admits to being one, because he can see actually that the scarecrow is clever. The Tin Man is heart, uh, full of heart and the Cowardly Lion isn't cowardly. He's actually brave. So he's not entirely full of shit because he knows what would sort them out. And all they need is a little bit of external validation. Well, indeed. And in their adventure, they are actually engaging in the actions that help overcome what they feel are their own areas of weaknesses. So, you know, the, the lion is leaps to the defense of Dorothy. You know, the Tin Man cares when, when poor old Dorothy is, is kidnapped. They, you know, they demonstrate courage and heart and... I mean, the scarecrow can talk, and he's full of straw. That's pretty good. Yeah. If I had straw for a brain, I couldn't talk. And the cowardly lion isn't actually A lion, it's a man in a suit. Sorry, I thought that's where you were going with that. It's true as well, yeah. It's quite a good suit. But, but, I mean, the cowardly lion's problem, specifically, is that he gets afraid, and, yeah, he acts anyway, and he thinks, really, if he was brave, he wouldn't feel the fear in the first place. It's this thing about not seeing anybody else's blooper reel. Is he doesn't see that when brave people are doing brave things, they're shitting themselves too, but they do it despite their fear. And so because he feels fear and he then acts bravely anyway, he still thinks he's cowardly because he knows what his emotion is, even though his actual outside actions are the same as a brave person's. He just doesn't see what's going on inside the other people's heads when they're doing stuff. The lion shitting himself, by the way, is in the DVD extras of uh, The Wizard of Oz, if you're interested. (laughs) Deleted scenes. Yeah, it's real method acting. (laughs) It was very hot on set. And then the Tin Woodman, he gets his heart stuck in his chest. And I suppose it's a kind of prop, maybe, that sort of then you can then refer to, or you think something's changed about yourself physically, that then... I don't know. It's like, you know, cosmetic surgery. You know. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure that was quite the message. <laughs> well, I, I don't know. It is. It's like, you know, oh, my God, my no- I look really horrible. My nose is really weird. So I don't know. Oh, no, so okay. I'll, I'll get and a disembodied so heart nose- and stick it in my chest. On, on, on the cosmetic surgery front, I, I did, uh, you know, joke about with, with some friends uh, a couple of years ago when I wasn't getting anywhere with my career. I'm going to bleach my skin to make it a bit whiter. That might help. <laughs> <laughs> I tell Mark, we get, I'm getting a real like I'm getting a real window today. Oh, man, I've lived I've lived a blessed life. I mean, I just feel I feel jealous of people with hair, but now I'm not I haven't realised how good I got it. <laughs> I'm going to drag us back to the point 
And I, well, I don't think Dorothy at any point, Dorothy's entire imposter syndrome comes from the fact that she actually is an imposter in that they think she's a, an amazing witch or whatever because she killed the Wicked Witch of the East by dropping a house on her, but that was entirely accidental. And so, you know, she's not, she hasn't got any magic powers whatsoever. It's entire, and she kills the one from the West by chucking a bucket of water over and not realizing that will do the damage. So, in a sense, she doesn't have imposter syndrome. She actually is an imposter as far as that goes. All she wants to do is get home, and then Glinda gives her the, I was going to say silver, but I'm not talking Ruby. about the books. I'm talking about the film, so I'm going to call them ruby slippers, um, so that she can tap them and go home. Yeah, And then the wizard is, is our actual imposter. Is that my equivalent of that mysterious white man? Yeah. Yeah, he is definitely a, me- a mediocre white I'm man. I'm not going to be able to watch that movie again, by the way, without seeing the curtain reveal and be like, ah, oh, a mediocre white man. <laughs> that or I'll just catch myself in the bathroom mirror and be like, oh no. Okay, so uh, with the question answered. Is there anything more we can say about that? No, I think those three things really work. I think those those what he's done there, what the wizard's done is really given them the things that we've said that we've identified, really. I don't know if Puyin's going to come in there, but it's a bit difficult not having seen the film. <laughs> does that sound like a plausible argument, though? It, well, it does, yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Was it not convincing? Should I say it again with more? <laughs> no, no, no. No, it's just like it's desperate for validation. No, I, 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 want it, I want it to be more convincing. I want, if anything, like overly convinced. I want it to be <laughs> the, the sound part of you being like, whoa. I think it absolutely does, yes. Oh, brilliant. I might copy and paste that into other bits of the podcast as well. <laughs> okay, so uh, with the question answered, let's move on to the third and final part of the show where we address some tips for your own practice. Part three, practical tips. So, uh, part three, tips for your own practice. Maybe we just go around and based on what we've had so far, what are our tips that people can take into their own practice? I guess for perhaps recognising, overcoming uh, and supporting people who are suffering from imposter syndrome. Uh, who'd like to, to chip in first? Uh, Puyin? I think I think support is important. I think I, I could really have done with more support rather than, you know, the mysterious white men. White men, more than one, you know, uh, <laughs> have appeared in my life. So what I do now, because I'm in the stage in my career where I've got a little bit of experience, I can support early career learning technologists because I'm kind of I've, I feel like I've kind of moved up a little bit now. So I I go on my way to support people when I can, and it's it's great that someone actually emailed me the other day. They say, "Oh, you're such an inspiration," and I'm like, <laughs> "No, you're, you're just so funny, aren't you?" <laughs> um, but it's again, it's the external recognition that I'm getting that helps me, and I want to kind of channel that, you know, to put it in a kind of quite cliche way, sort of paying it forward. Because mm. I, I have been inspired by loads of people who've come before me, and I want to do the same. And it, it, it's just a little support really helps. Just telling these sort of younger generation, I can't believe I've just said that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you are better than people think. I know it sounds really cringy and whatever, but it, it does mean a lot. Um, it does mean a lot and um, a bit of a shameless promotion an article of mine about institutional racism is actually coming up <laughs> did you just remember that it's coming up in two weeks time and the conclusion in that is exactly that I say look I actually made a plea in my in my own article to say please help people when you see them in need it doesn't take much for you to say everything's all right you're better than you think but it means a lot to the people 
who are in the sort of shit situation, as it were. So that that's my number one tip. Just go out and look for, you know, people who need help. It, it won't cost you much time, effort anyway, and any, you know, but it, it, it helps. That's awesome. I think the fact that I think that because you're coming from it from a position of authenticity as well with regards to your own experiences with imposter syndrome, I think that when you're supporting other people, that's what's going to make the big difference. Because you can have somebody telling you, "Oh yeah, you're great," and you're like, "Yeah, but am I?" You know, no, no, no. Okay, so I this I felt like you. I felt exactly what you're describing. This is how I felt, and these are the stages I went through, and this is where this is when it starts getting better. That sort of thing, sort of telling your experience gives you the authenticity to show people that they're on a journey and to actually help them. I hope so. Yeah, I hope so. And and I think, you know, um, we would touch on it a couple of times um, early on. It's, it's external recognition. Mm. Now, personally, do I agree with the sort of, you know, collecting so many letters after your name? You know, these are the things that are imposed by our society. I don't really agree with it. But if that's what can get you to the next stage, then then do it. You know, just go and get your fellowship, senior fellowship, or, you know, go and do another MA, go and do a PhD, whatever, that that can help you progress to the next stage. I don't agree with that, but I am playing the game. I've learned to play the game, as it were. So just do it. <laughs> it's hard work, but <laughs> what can you do? That That's the society that we live in, and it's not going to change. And it's not going to change anytime soon. So... Just collecting, collect more letters after your name. Why not? I mean, for the first time in my professional career, I've now put my letters after my name. For many, many years, I I, I just put Puyin Wong Learning Technologies, but now I put Puyin Wong uh, MFA Senior Fellowship and whatever I've got. Does it help with my imposter syndrome? For me personally, it does because every time I see myself signing my sign- uh, signing my email, I'm like, yeah, I'm better than I think. Does it mean? Does it? Does that actually mean anything to anyone? I don't know. Probably not. <laughs> but does that matter? I mean, it's because, it, as you say, it's it's an internal thing, and it's something that makes a difference for you. It's your psychology that matters. Yeah, absolutely. So, I, sorry, I feel like I've been rambling. Not at all. No, not at all. That that all made a lot of sense, and actually, it transitions really nicely to what do you think, Doctor Mark Child Senior Fellowship? That's <laughs> a picture. NTF PhD and a bunch of other things. I'm sure. I think yeah, it's the it's the personal feedback. I think I think echoing what Pune was saying was that yeah, you can get these bits of paper, but anybody, you know, sometimes you can you can feel like you've wangled the bits of paper without really necessarily deserving them. So you know, like the scarecrow in his diploma, he was just that's he fell for that. I mean, that wasn't very bright, was it? <laughs> but if somebody had said, "Look, here's an occasion where." you thought of something you've worked out the way to get to the emerald city or you worked out this thing that would have been more convincing and so having people on hand to well you don't you don't want them having to be like boost your ego all the time but just having people that are there to help validate you at moments i think can can really make a difference and the other thing is to remember that 76 percent of people feel imposter syndrome and the other 24 percent of people are idiots and <laughs> the, so therefore i think that it's because you are good at it that you do feel like an imposter and realizing that it's an inevitable part of expertise to feel that you're not expert enough is a kind of i don't know it's like a mental judo world isn't it? it's like oh god i feel i'm crap therefore i can't be there's also a level of being humble, isn't it? Being an imposter, have, suffering from imposter syndrome also means that you are probably more humble than your arrogant mm. white men sort of. And also, like you were saying, that 
within reason, within limits, it can actually be a springboard to try better as well. So it's not necessarily a bad thing. I think when it's there, when when it prevents you from doing things that you might get some benefit from, it's a problem. But when, but if you can think, well, there are other people that are worse than me that would go for this, then it's worthwhile re- bearing that in mind as well. Hmm. I think for me, it's recognizing that you're on, well, that you and those around you are on a journey as well and being aware of that. So for example, if you've got maybe somebody new uh, in the team that you're in and you maybe suffered from imposter syndrome yourself when you were starting in the team, kind of being sympathetic to the fact that they may themselves be having imposter syndrome, but also reviewing your own experiences of where you suffered from it in the past, maybe starting a new job or learning something new, picking up a new skill, being in a new social group, and then looking back, reflecting on the journey that you took then and how you didn't always feel like an imposter. Like there was a point where you moved beyond it. And then using that, not necessarily to overcome the imposter syndrome, because I think as we've discussed, there's so many factors at play there that to a large degree, it's going to be hardwired. But at least having kind of the, I'm going to say it, Mark, I'm going to ring my bell, the metacognitive awareness that you're, (laughs) ding, 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 the metacognitive that this is a thing that will pass. And because you understand it will pass, it makes it more manageable. Understanding that it's a natural product of where you are rather than something that's coming from you. It's not a flaw within you. It's a result of where you currently are. Allows you to make it more manageable, frees up perhaps a little bit of cognitive load and hopefully stops you from getting locked down in that feedback loop, as well as be sympathetic to those who you see in a similar position. Yeah. And I suppose the other thing is not generate situations in which you are forcing people to be something they're not, because that level of imposture, 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 imposterinatious, I don't know what the word is, <laughs> impostering, posing is not something you want to add to somebody's you know, experience, just let them be themselves and not force them to be something they're not. I feel that there should have been more words. <laughs> <laughs> we can put them in later. <laughs> okay, I think, unless anybody has anything else they want to add, I think we've covered all of the bases. But before we wrap up, where can people find you online? Where can people find your podcast? Where can people find your upcoming article? Well, as my podcast title said... It's my liminal pot. I live in liminality. So good luck with finding me. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, my liminal pot is actually because my favorite theory, which is the one I'm writing for my PhD, is about the threshold concept by Rayland, Eric Myers, so on and so forth. And, and one of the most unique characteristics of the threshold concept is being in the liminal space, which is where you feel uncertain, which is where you learn, hence, hence my liminal pot, hence liminality. I just love to say that I live in liminality because then you can't find me. Anyway, where can people find me? I am on Twitter, just my first name, so at Puyin, or uh, my liminal pot is also called my liminal pot on Twitter. Everything is on there. And um, you can find me in sun, sunny South London, sometimes. <laughs> and all those links will be in the show notes. Um, brilliant. Well, thank you very much for joining us. We look forward to you hopefully joining us again in the future. So thank you very, very much for listening. You can subscribe to us on all of your favorite apps, feeds, iTunes, and at our website, pedagodzilla.com. You can also follow us and get in touch via Twitter. I'm at Pedagodzilla. I'm at Mark Childs. And I'm at Puyin. We really, really hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, then please share it with somebody. They don't necessarily need to be uh, knowledgeable in education. Uh, Perhaps your postman. Just, I don't know, stick it. If he's putting a letter through the post box, grab his hand, pull it through. Uh, and then using a biro, write the URL for the podcast on the back of it. 
he'll, he'll remember that I tell you we love you lots and we'll see you next time on Pedagodzilla bye bye now bye bye <laughs>